0: I just want to say, um, that sounds like the the idea of praying for you, that sounds like it's coming from a West Indian family member, am I correct?
1: Oh, my mom, West African, Um, my mom's Uh, yeah, you know,
0: the African diaspora, yeah, (laughs) Mm -hmm. (laughs) absolutely, (laughs) great, Um, so I wanted to, um, unless anyone else had something to add, I wanted to transition to distribution who gets it? I mean, if everything is, is equal, right? Who gets it first? Who gets it last? Um, are, are you guys happy with the way it's been distributed at this point? Um, and, and who is making these recommendations where they're determining, of course, it's understandable that people working in healthcare should be first. But um, after we get through that, Then what happens to the different communities out there? Where are we? And I'm thinking in terms of uh, myself as a person of color, as a black woman, um, certainly as an immigrant. I'm thinking of people in prison. I mean, we talked a lot about uh, throughout this process, we heard a lot about residential areas. So there's a lot of information and conversations around nursing homes and the elderly. Um, I hardly heard anything about residential programs for children in the child welfare system who are living in group homes. I didn't hear much about people in the prison system and certainly detention, which also becomes blacker and browner as we move in those areas. So I am very curious as to what that strategy is going to look like. I know you guys are not in a position to make, to determine who's going to get it, but what are some of your thoughts and concerns? So I'm going to start with Nia and Alexis and then come to Franklin, um, Ben, and Maria. Um, do you want to go first, Mom? Or do you want...
2: Okay. Um, well, honestly, I haven't even really given that part much thought, which is probably just shows the privilege in my own life, I guess, that I would just assume that when the general population gets it, that I would too. But I guess for me, um, now that I'm thinking about it, um, I guess, yeah, people who don't have access to the basic rights that most people do, like people in prisons or people in uh, institutions, like locked up somewhere maybe, or people based, people who are just looked down by the rest of society, I feel like are probably gonna be, as with most things, like the last to get it, um, which is gonna be unfortunate, but I think it might be a reality that Is just gonna happen. Um, I think that also plays into the whole trust thing of just like who's gonna be able to have access to it and what that means for people who won't, and you know, how we move forward as like a country together with that. It's like half of the people have the vaccine and half the people don't and what that will look like i mean obviously we're still going to have to be wearing masks and everything and still taking precautions um but yeah i think it's going to be interesting and most likely unfortunate <coughs> because that there will probably be some groups that are probably going to be left out or left for last
0: um, thank you yeah. alexis
3: <coughs> I would agree with everything Nia said, and I would just add to that some of the workers that service those um, populations. So um, I'm thinking about, you mentioned children and youth in residential care, and I'm thinking about the people that work with them, the workers who are often frontline staff. They're not classified as essential, so they're not gonna be in a priority list. Um, However, these are the people that when we look at disparities in terms of communities that had high numbers in contracting the virus, these were the very people that for those of us like myself who were privileged to be working remotely, these were people that needed to still go to work every day. They're not necessarily considered essential workers, right? So they're not in that category. So I certainly wonder about them. Um, In terms of the dissemination plan, I do not want to hear any horror stories, as I mentioned earlier, about communities. I mean, so we know from the literature on community loss and you're you're familiar with that, Dr. Bess, that there are specific communities that have always encountered numerous losses. And um, they have high numbers of um, um, infant mortality, high numbers of um, any illness, they get it, high rates of poverty. You know, everything is overlapped, right? And so I would hate to hear for those communities to be the ones that in the dissemination, we're, we're hearing later, oh my God, the, the, this community got the, the wrong batch or the batch that wasn't kept at the um, temperature that we're hearing about, I think. So that would be something I would be particularly concerned and just say that I'm privileged, I'm not in one of those communities. However, um, as someone who's always concerned about equity, that worries me.
0: And also as a social worker, right? To work with those communities.
4: Hmm. I wanted to add, um, because that's a really good point uh, Nia and Alexis that you two brought up about um, essential workers. Um, so I work as a, as a contact tracer for the state and um, helping out with putting people into VAMS, which is the vaccine management system. And one thing that we do is reaching right now. We're reaching out to Phase One B people, um, and that is essential workers. And we're putting in Walmart employees, Amazon employees, which are majority Black and Brown, and majority getting COVID positive, right? And that's so important that you mentioned um, custodians because custodians are very much essential workers and have to have like um, priority in getting the vaccine. And one thing that we see occurring is, um, for example, like childcare is put in as a vaccine as in phase one B and we ask for staff, but they only give the teachers. So then we have to be like, oh wait, no, like give the the custodians, give everyone who's there at the childcare and make sure that they're in the list so that we could put them in VAMS, right? But it's really true because, you know, someone who cares about equity or a social worker has to be like, no, like give us the whole list because if they just like don't care, then they're just gonna take the teachers and they're gonna be put into VAMS. But that's really that's really true in the sense that like, what Maria was saying, like more, more people need to be included into these conversations.
0: You know, thank you for saying that Sneha because that's important. So what if you, didn't have the knowledge about equity or is concerned about equity and they gave you a list with just teachers and you just took it right not pushing back to say what about the other folks who work there so that's the issue about working in institutions because if the institutions train these people to look you know to be equitable then they would respond the way Sneha is, but I can I can tell you not everyone is going to be able to do that. So I think that's the issue here about um, equity, equity, equity. Boy, in every aspect, we always have to be concerned. Thanks for that, um, Maria.
5: Yeah. So in terms of vaccine rollout. Um... They have they did set up a plan for 1A and then the 1B. I believe the medical students and other ancillary administrative staff are also in 1B. Um, and they, from what I saw at our institution, they responded uh, well to including frontline staff, ICU workers um, and emergency, uh, personnel in the front line, but I actually I would like to probably review the list and see if there was custodial workers um, also included in that list. I I would I would imagine so because they are blocked off based on what unit they work on and that's how they went about vaccinating at the university. Um, but in terms of just going back to, um, equity. I think that it will be interesting to see uh, how, I, from what I've seen, like certain institutions, like comparing the pharmacy school to the medical school, even there was differences in the rollout plan. And so the pharmacy, pharmacy students actually received the vaccine before um, our health center did. And so that w- I thought that that was an interesting way that they went about doing that. But Again, it goes back to access, making sure they have the the, um, the I guess the minus eighty freezers, having a facility for those, having the whole like workflow, having the patient population to work on, and having the personnel to work on those people, and having those people vaccinated. So it it really is a huge plan. Now that I think about it. Um, and I was in a, a space of limbo for a while, waiting to see if I would be vaccinated, if I would be on that list. And I only found out yesterday, actually, that I would be.
0: Yeah. Thank you. Ben.
1: Now, I don't know about custodians, wherever you guys work, but our hospital, I'm pretty sure the custodians there have been vaccinated or are planning on being vaccinated. So yeah, it really de- it really depends on where you work. And yeah, I don't know how what goes into that, but the whole prison stuff. This question has made me think a lot. Like I'm doing a lot of listening here. I don't have much to say, but I'm listening a lot here.
0: Well thank you. <laughs> we value any and everything you have to say. <laughs> um, <clears throat> Okay, so um, it's it's. I'm glad to hear this. The the whole issue of community loss and um, historical uh, oppression is really important as we think about this whole um, uh, marketing device or decisions around distribution and who gets the vaccine and who doesn't. Um, And and Ben, uh, Franklin, I think you talked about this, you said, um, it's not gonna work if we mandate people, if we show up in a community and mandate people. Um, But do you see it getting to that point for those of you who are working in the medical field?
6: At this point, in terms of whether it gets mandated, it is still relatively early to determine how like how they would mandate it if that were the case, because it's gonna be hard to just have like one sweeping like mandate like mandate across like Connecticut. A lot of the mandation relies on like certain institutions, whether it's a school or hospital or community health centers, or, like nursing homes. And that can be left up to them. And just based on like what I know think, what I know already. Because this virus has done so much damage already, I wouldn't be surprised to see maybe later um, later on this year that schools are opening back up and they say, if you're going to come, if your kid's going to come to school, they need the COVID vaccine. Or if, you know, you, if you work here and you're working here, you got to come and get this vaccine. You have to get vaccine before you come to work again. So I won't be surprised to see uh, certain institutions mandate the vaccine because... Especially with, especially with the schools, because I feel we, we a lot of us don't understand how, how disastrous it can be if there's not enough people who have an immunity to the virus. All it takes is maybe a couple kids to go on a bus and then meet a couple kids who aren't vaccinated. And then the bus driver gets it, they go to school, the other kids get it, they go home, give it to their parents. And that can be a whole disaster now, like whether it's a principal or superintendent is going to have to face a camera and answer to why like there's a COVID outbreak in your school district. So depending on how we do with rollout now, I I won't be surprised to see like schools and universities and like certain places of employment it. I feel still kind of relative to, to say whether or not they'll do that. But one thing I will add, or I will mention, and I think that goes with something that I was determining before, the vaccine rollout. the federal government releases the the doses to the states and the CDC does have recommendations for like essential workers and frontline healthcare workers to get it first, but it's ultimately up to the states to decide the tiers of um, or the phases of who gets it first, second, and third, and so on. And that's kind of one of like, I guess as a public health person, my pet peeves because that's when politics can really influence something that we don't have time to have a debate over And there's a specific example that I actually read about earlier this morning. And I don't wanna say this to scare anyone, but I just feel like we really need to highlight the reality of what's coming when when the vaccine becomes more and more widely available and governors are determining who gets it. I read something about the governor of Nebraska. And so one of the biggest concerns about this COVID vaccines are the prisons, uh, uh, meatpacking facilities, nursing homes, places like that where a lot of these essential workers work and a lot of these places are are dominated by undocumented immigrants and undocumented people they're the ones working in the nursing homes working in hospitality uh even working like janitorial stuff custodians like a lot of these workers are undocumented immigrants in a lot of places and so what this governor did he came out made a statement saying that um you have to be a legal citizen to get vaccinated oh so just by that alone that ices out so many people who is who are
0: supposed to be getting the vaccine first well it ices them out but it also um put pushes a lot of people into the shadows again exactly
6: that's exactly what i'm saying so
0: and this is what i'm talking about i mean equity is one level but racism is still here and and um it really leads me to the, I had a question related to everything. There's a heightened sense of racism happening now. It's been happening since 2016, maybe 2015, when Donald Trump started his, um, you know, his run. Um, He started with Mexicans, right? And then gradually moved to every other group, including women. Mm -hmm. Um, So... How does that add to, I mean, mean, clearly that adds to people's sense of powerlessness. I'm thinking of those undocumented immigrants you mentioned earlier. Um, Hearing that statement from your leader in the state that you live, I mean, the truth is historically, states haven't done well by people of color. Exactly. Right? The federal government have always had to step in in order to, to move states. In the direction of um, of of equity, yeah. to some degree. Um, so to hear that that sense of powerlessness, um, what are some ways we can um, help? You know, people understand the need to be inclusive of all people, irrespective of where they're working, because um, not giving someone the vaccine who works in a meatpacking company that is going to contribute to other things right i mean what are what is what can we say to those people those um people who are in power who are making those decisions that are racist and what can we say to those who are the recipient of this form of oppression this blatant overt form of oppression
6: so I'll be completely honest that's a one of the most necessary conversations I feel we need to have with those people but that that powerlessness is a real thing like because even if we offer some type of solution to the problem they're probably gonna run into another form of oppression somewhere that's gonna block them off from being able to put themselves in positions to at least help solve the problem so this might like veer off track a little bit, but I know like we just had an election this year, and it's and like part of the reason this pandemic got to where it is is because of people in power who are making these decisions, and I, I won't even lie, like, I was one of those people telling everyone like, like you have to go vote, like this is like very important, but there's some people who can't vote because of the same types of oppression, and it's people who were voted into these seats, whether it's a governor or a senator, they're the ones making these decisions. So like even people that want to participate in that are still running into problems. So I feel we have to do a lot more in coming to terms to what where the problems really lie and then try and organize for more focused problem solving. Yeah. And that that can at least apply pressure to people to at least do the right thing whether whether they necessarily mean it or not if that makes sense. Mhm. So, absolutely. Like, if we if we have to put pressure on elected officials, whether it's even like city council members, we have to we have to first come to terms of what the issues really are, and then have more focused problem solving towards that solution, and then right. we'll be able to position ourselves more nicely into a spot where we can actually contribute to solving the problem.
0: Yeah, Alexis, I want to come to you because the child welfare system interacts with undocumented immigrants, poor people, people who are marginalized, disenfranchised, and certainly oppressed. Um, How do, you know, what are some strategies the child welfare institutions can use to um, mitigate against racism or, um, and this is a very large question, or reduce the um, the frequency of racist acts against these people.
3: I mean, unfortunately, very little. You know, from a a mandated protective capacity, there's no discrimination (laughs) against undocumented people, right? So they get reported, as you know very well, accessing services that are mandated in child welfare is not based on one's immigration status, right? Because the primary focus is the child. And even in the uh, preventive services, one's um, immigration status is not part of the criteria for getting services. However, even as an institution, we run into barriers for families who need to access, for instance, mental health or other, an array of um, mental health services or medical services and they don't have insurance. So the children, as you know, are eligible, just like children are eligible to be in the public school system. But oftentimes some of the family dynamics, it's recommended that the parents also be Um, together receiving services with children. And we run into those barriers all the time where parents cannot access the service because they are not documented. So again, I think this discussion, um, you know, when when Franklin just shared that news, my heart just stopped for a minute, you know, because we know that individual states make decisions, right? And so, I happen to be living in a state that I don't think is going to make the decision that, that you just spoke about for Nebraska, but we certainly don't know what will happen. I think we can only all pray, as your mother's doing, that the new presidency would, would hopefully issue a much more national policy as it relates to the rollout and dissemination, right? So how can you say, oh, we wanna have herd immunity and then you have huge groups being discriminated against. And this goes back to your initial, our initial conversation about our trust or lack of trust in the government. This is a perfect example of that. So we as one institution child welfare can do very little. I do think though that it's now up to have a national policy about the dissemination so that there's equity and fairness, you know, across the country because people travel, right? So I could decide I'm gonna go to Nebraska. Um, it's just silly to have states make those kind of decisions and really it is uh, discrimination.
0: I think a lot of people are waiting for the new administration, the Biden-Harris administration, to come in because they certainly appear to be gentler and more humane. Um, And and I was listening to to Biden's speech today, and he was talking about... um, um, making his first 100 years, he was uh, first 100 days in, in, in um, office, he was going to um, make immigration policies a priority in addition to of course, the distribution of COVID-19 and all that. But I know that um, when when people who are undocumented or on the fence, such as DACA recipients, who are uh, many of them are in the workplace, many of them are in colleges and universities, right? Um, and, and when they hear something like that, they may even be in medical school and they hear something like that. It does um, bring with it some um, you know it, it 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 causes them a great deal of anxiety so um i'm thinking you know nia can you share you know i don't know if you're you're familiar with anyone who's a daca but i can imagine um if they're in college they may have some concerns can you share anything about that
2: um yeah also can you hear me well because it started storming so i'm not sure if it's loud in the back or not
0: yeah we no we're not hearing the storm but we certainly can hear you
2: um yeah so personally i'm i don't know any daca recipients um but i think that it would most definitely be like have a harmful impact on them to know that especially as Franklin was saying before that I also agree with schools are probably gonna start mandating it to say that you have to have the vaccine before you come back. So I think that would kind of put them in a really difficult situation to have to take the vaccine to come back to the school, but then their parents or people that they know who are who are undocumented not being able to get it in their, for their place of work, which is obviously, You know essential and it's probably not it's not a job that you could just how a lot of people on this call were just given the opportunity to take the vaccine and that's not going to be available to them um i mean yeah i don't know i don't know any people personally but i think that that would be a really tough position to be in especially when it's your own parents like that's just like you hurt for them you know that's i would be i mean if i was in that position i would be terrified that they have to go and risk their life every day while everybody else gets to go around getting the vaccine right um
0: yeah great thank I you also have
2: a question uh-huh. um franklin when, he was, when you were mentioning about how it's on a state level that, like, the power would be given to, would that be possible to, like, is that, could that be national? Or do you think that the states are just going to, that's not going to change, where they're going to have their own decision-making?
6: Uh, that that sort of comes down to like the balances of power and like federal and state law. So like, for example, when you guys were just talking about how Biden's looking to do immigration reform and like, hopefully if that turns out, okay, that can open up the pathway to more people getting vaccinated in that demographic. But if there's a, if there's like a federal law that says you can't not give it to someone because of their like immigration status, that kind of changes the landscape of how it happens. But because certain things are left to the governors, that's when it becomes difficult. But like I said, it it all, it's all like, it all starts from the top down. So in terms of mass distributing it and getting it out to enough people, we also have to be cognizant of who might be most vulnerable to getting iced out first and then try to at least come up with solutions or policy that can address that. So then governors can't take advantage of that loophole to say, okay, so we're not going to offer it to undocumented immigrants yet. And then therefore, so like now all the meatpacking facilities and the nursing homes and custodians are all iced out of the vaccine now just because of a governor's decision. So that's where I said, that's when I said like, that's when politics starts to influence things, which is one of like the most annoying things to just have to witness.
2: Okay, that makes sense. Thank you for
0: explaining that. And we need a national strategy. Maria, I have one question for you. Will there be enough vaccines for everyone in the United States? And how will we know, and the average person know when it's their turn? Any thoughts on that? Yeah,
5: so in terms of um, if there are enough vaccines, at least from the manufacturing standpoint, I believe there should be enough because they can upscale that and they also can store the vaccine. The The issue with the um, vaccine in terms of time sensitivity and temperature sensitivity is after um, it's been thawed. And so there is a good um, strategy for storage of the vaccine. And then um, I think the time consuming process is in these strategies to disseminate the vaccine, because those are the processes that need um, multiple levels of making sure that the vaccine has been um, thawed for the correct time and is at the right temperature and that the after the thawing that it is given at an appropriate time to the recipient. And then in terms of having all of those logistic, um, hurdles in place to make sure the entire US is vaccinated. I think that that goes back to um, at an institutional level if those, those are in place, but then also as we had mentioned the, the health disparities and the, the differential treatment and care of different communities. So I think from a logistics standpoint it is possible to vaccinate everyone But when it comes to actual implementation and in practice, that's when we've seen, at least with other, um, even just access to normal medications or compliance to medications, the medications may be there. They may be too expensive. They could be too um, difficult to acquire, but and they also may not have access to even getting that medication in the first place. So I guess. That's where I would probably stand with that question.
0: Thanks, that. I have one more question for you. If a person recovered from COVID nineteen and they have the antibodies, should they still take the vaccine?
5: So, from studies I've read so far, um, the antibodies have been um, have variable like response in terms of how long they stay in the in the s- systemic circulation. However, there's more to the immune system than just antibodies. And I think that um, some people tend to make a better antibody response than others. There's so many variations around that. Um, even if you were to just look at the hep B vaccine, which um, many like healthcare workers have had already, you get constant titers of that vaccine. You get um, titers to determine if you still have the antibodies. Um, and that's even after getting multiple doses that they check those titers. So um, I'm not sure if there are current guidelines around vaccinating individuals who have had the vaccine in the past, but just coming from an immunology perspective, it would make sense that um, if someone has been that has gotten COVID, they would have some type of immunity to it. However, since it is a new virus that we don't fully understand, we don't know how long that immunity lasts on one part. And then we also don't know how long the vaccine uh, immunity lasts. So we don't know if there's going to be a continued vaccination schedule after the two doses. So because there are gaps in knowledge about those two aspects, I, I think that it would be hard to to fully have a guideline around whether someone can get vaccinated after.
0: Thanks. Thank you for that. Franklin, I have a question for you. So there's a lot of uh, questions or talks about the vaccines or this particular vaccine causing infertility or having medical problems. I can see from the two of you, both you and Ben, that there hasn't been any side effects or at least to date. But do you have any answers for those people who are thinking that the vaccine causes infertility or other medical problems?
6: So in terms of the fertility, I have looked into that. There isn't any evidence or anything substantial that points to uh, vaccines causing infertility, especially in women and pregnant women. One of the concerns that I that I that I've actually heard from people a lot is, if someone who's pregnant, and if they're taking anything while they're pregnant, people are worried about a cross reactivity reaction. So usually, if they get a vaccine and then they feel something's off, they think it's a, a direct result of the vaccine, but there hasn't been any evidence to show that there's uh, infertility due to the vaccine. That 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 was the common concern that was proven to have no evidence behind it and there are there have been trials on women who are pregnant with the vaccine as well
0: okay oh okay that's good to know thank you for that so as we're winding down I have a couple of questions left one is um uh, for Franklin um, and anyone else who would like to answer Franklin Maria, but um, what motivates you to do the work you do? We're very impressed by you and the work that you do and the answers you had around some of the questions we have that's it's been very helpful and it's certainly um, really helpful to see young people of color in the field of medicine and research, right medical research. And so um, uh, we support you wholeheartedly. So what motivates you to do the work that you do? And what are some of the joys and challenges in the work that you do?
6: So one of the biggest joys that I would get out of the work is being able to do things that impact people in a positive way. Like what we were talking about throughout this throughout, this was the lack of trust between providers and communities of color, um, health agencies, medicine and all that. And it is really a good thing to see because I work in clinical trials for sickle cells. So we have black um, participants on our studies. It is good to see them learn to open up and trust in us and medicine more. And that and knowing the fact that they're contributing to advancement of care of something that's been a very very debilitating condition in a in communities of in a community of color, and Black and in Af- Blacks and African Americans, so it was really good to see the impact that you make in the long run, as well as just hearing their stories. Because another part of my job is, I do like community support. I'm like a community health community support specialist, so I help patients when they need help finding housing, rental assistance or food pantries or access to fresh food. So hearing their stories and their situations and knowing that you can do something to make it better is what motivates me to keep doing it.
0: Thank you. Maria and Ben.
5: Yeah, um, so I I previously was talking about uh, WIC and how I kind of was, I started um, my research career and working with patients at WIC um, in Hartford. And that's, offers supplemental nutrition for women and children in the Hartford area for uh, children less than five years old. So that kind of goes back to my personal journey. I'm My mom immigrated here back um, in 1995 or so. And so um, I was actually a, a baby in that WIC system. And we actually and I, I think that that process came full circle when I worked with those moms. Um, the, In terms of why I'm studying medicine, it really goes back to, we were answering like why questions, understanding mechanisms of disease and all of these other aspects of why things happen. But I think really my the underlying reason of why in terms of why I, Half why I go through this ex- full extent of going through multiple years of training and all of that, all of that is really based in the fact that I really um, believe that I benefited from many hands and many people before me who saw that um, my story mattered and that I can contribute to making sure that patients their voices are heard. Um, because someone somewhere along the line and multiple people have, you know, advocated for me to either be in the spaces where I was having conversations around diversity and and health disparities or be in spaces where I can further my um, personal training in research. Um, And so I really at the end of the day, it kind of I have many people before me who've helped me and then I hope to aspire to have that much of an impact on someone else's life. And, and again, I would like to either share that story with other people who have either not had the same experiences as me, or even learn from people who have, who share my story or share some iteration of a story just like mine, because I know it's a very common, common story.
0: Great, thank you for that. Where did you
5: migrate from? Uh, my mom is from India. Um, okay. And yeah, and so we, she moved to Bridgeport at like when I was, well, she was a, ner- uh, a CNA and, and I actually went in to become a CNA and all of that too. That's like another story. But um, she she started out as a CNA and, and then
0: I was- What's born. a CNA? A Certified. nursing yeah. Certified nurse?
5: Yep, a nursing oh, okay. Yeah.
0: Thanks, thanks for that. So I'm gonna go to Ben and then Ania um, would follow. My question is um, whether it's work or school, why do you do what you do? What are some of the joys and challenges?
1: You know, my mom's a CNA too. But anyway, (laughs) (laughs) I got my job um, so I could experience what it was like to work in a hospital setting. And it's, so I'm an ER tech. I'm basically a CNA in an emergency department. And it's really the little things I do that make a difference. Like, I don't know, imagine wanting to go to the bathroom and you can't, cause you can't walk or something. And it's nice to help the patients cause I know what it's like when I have to hold my pee, I can't go to the bathroom. And they're so grateful, it's so nice. Or even giving someone like a warm blanket. But also it's nice to see how the whole team works, like how the doctors and the nurses work together and oh, Also, thank your respiratory therapist. Everyone always overlooks the respiratory therapist because with COVID, like no one talks about who operates these ventilators and is the respiratory therapist. They're also stretched thin. So thank them. I didn't even know that was a career until I started working in the emergency department. So I've been exposed to a lot of things. I've seen a lot of things. And in terms of challenges, I mean, we're short-staffed a lot. (laughs) So, but I can't really do anything about that. Um, also, it's nice to talk to patients that look like me, because surprisingly, Hartford Hospital's emergency department is not very diverse. Like, I can count on one hand how many black nurses there are, and there is not a single black male nurse. So it's nice to, like, talk with black people in there, black patients. And I mean, I can't really do much in advocating for them because I'm not really involved in their plan of care. But just listening to them like does a lot for them. So.
0: Do you have further plans for them to uh, further aspirations for the medical field?
1: Oh yes. I plan on applying to be a respiratory therapist. So I'm going to be going to school for that this fall, hopefully.
0: Excellent. Great. I hope you come back and talk to us. So, Nia, you are a sophomore in college and in environmental studies. Um, Can you talk a little bit about why you chose that and um, what are some of the joys and challenges?
2: Okay, um, yeah, so I'm actually studying environmental science. And um, basically, I, so the summer before I started college, I interned and then I worked at the New York Botanical Garden <clears throat> and I think well I've always had a love of nature since I was like a little girl and always planting with my mom and my grandma and always we have sharing that connection of like feeling a relationship with the earth so that has always been grounded in me from like the start but I think that experience like really solidified everything for me when thinking about like what I wanted to go to school for Um, So I started working there and interning there and um, at a really like hard time in my life and it kind of just gave like life meaning and like it made me recognize a lot of things about myself and like what my passions were and what I truly wanted to do. So um, I think it was also probably just about the timing also. And so I decided that I wanted to major Um, in environmental science. And as far as like the educational things I've been learning in school and stuff so far, it's mostly been around um, like humans and ecosystems and like human ecology and how humans have affected systems in the environment and how we are a part of the environment, even though we like to think we're separate from it. and so my school has specific concentrations that you can start in junior year so i'm really excited about starting my concentration which is going to be agriculture because that's what i'm like most interested in and um i think especially with like the rise of covid it's made me realize that it's important for people to feel like they can be self-sustainable and self-sufficient like, in the future and thinking about food as... Oops, sorry, there's thunder. Um, and thinking, like, about food as sustenance and not just thinking of it as something to capitalize on and just, like, going back to the original indigenous ways of doing things and, like, accepting non-Western ideas about food and things and relationships with nature. Um, So for me, like just seeing the intersections between the environment and like justice has been like really mind blowing for me. And um, especially like even reflecting on things that have happened in my own life and realizing like, oh, that's like environmental racism is a thing and things like that um, has just helped, has just helped like push me to realize that I wanna be engaged in this work and, that's what I want to do. But as far as the challenges, um, there's only been really the challenge of representation, I would say, like, especially in my school, it's in Vermont, so it's very white. And um, it's just been unfortunate that I haven't been able to like receive that transfer of learning from someone that looks like me. And, you know, has experience of like environmental racism and things like that. And um, it's usually just coming from a very like objective perspective, I feel like, but I think my school does really try to like diversify the readings and things like that as best as they can. So I would say that's like been the biggest challenge for me so far, just not really having like someone to talk to about you know, like the identity part of it and like how if people who have actually experienced these things, like sharing their experience. But as far as that, I've been very happy in my major so far. So, yeah.
0: Great. Thank you. I am feeling so good about having these young people (laughs) here, but also in the work that you do. Um, My God, you give me hope. You know, as, as my life move in the other direction, <laughs> it's good to know that there are going, you know, going to be these wonderful young people in medicine, environmental science, um, public health, you know, respiratory therapy, who are going to be out there and going to be doing a lot of fabulous things. So this, that's, that gives me joy. Um, so, Alexis, you are both a social worker. And a student um, in your PhD program, um, what would you say uh, motivates you to do the work that you do, and what gives you joy, and what are some of the challenges?
3: I didn't. Uh, that's I t- I didn't know I was going to get that long winded question. I was ready like to. You were going to say close it out or something. Um, So I'm very passionate about um, children, families and communities. And so, you know, it doesn't really matter where I'm working or who my employer is necessarily, as long as I have that work. And I think for a long time, as you know, I've also been working with um, graduate level social workers and helping them discover the leadership qualities that they have. And so after doing that for a while, I see so many of them are leaders in in our system in New York City. And I also work nationally with um, two jurisdictions across the country. And so also tapping into the leadership of the next generation of uh, emerging child welfare professionals that are social workers by education. So um, I'm very passionate about that work. Um, I think the challenges are continue to be a big part of the conversation that we had today, seeing how inequity is still prevalent in this institution that I'm in. Uh, we know it based on uh, disproportionality for children of color and what that looks like, or or predominantly I'll say black children, um, disproportionality across the continuum of the child welfare institution. So that has been um, a huge piece of work in, in collaboration with you on educating and really putting forth strategies to reduce disproportionality and also, Um, engaging like we often use these big terms and say we're doing this and we're doing equitable work and then the reality is when we start digging into that it's like well how does that show up in the practice and so um, holding on to my role as an educator in terms of you know helping students and new professionals really take a very close look at how does that show up in practice and so that's been something I've been very committed to and very passionate about. And I, so I say I'm 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 saying both of them together because while that I'm passionate about it, it's also very challenging, right? And so I want to just end by saying it's important in this work when you are focusing on strengthening communities that you also find some time for self care.
2: Excellent.
3: And I would so, give that good. to everyone here, also the young people to realize that that is a professional obligation, because it seemed like from the stories, many of you will also be working with the same communities. And so if you can put that as part of your, you know, work week is very
0: important. Good point. Thank you for sharing that. Um, self-care is, extro- it's, is very important. I have one last question. And that question is, if you have only one message to share with the world, particularly around COVID-19 and the vaccine, what would it be? But it doesn't have to be specific to COVID-19. Um, so I will start with Franklin, go to Maria, Ben, then, Nia, and end with Alexis.
6: So the one thing that I would, like the one message that I would have is that public health does and still works. Because I feel when this thing first popped off, there was a, they were telling you, hey, like, wear your masks, like social distance, wash your hands. And people are like asking like, oh, what's that going to do? Like that stuff does work. Like things like that, where people work together and try to be on the same page, like things like that does work to help quell these public health crises. Everything is not a militarized approach in terms of like trying to find like the best medicine or the best vaccine, like targeted public health measures still work. Those are never gonna go away and those are never gonna not work, if that makes sense.
0: Thank you for that. I I will say um, because of COVID-19, we have heard a lot from the public health discipline, right? And I got to learn how important it is. Um, So um, that has, and certainly the respiratory therapist, that's another area um, that I learned a lot about in terms of their significance in in the medical field. Thank you for that. Maria, would you like to go next? What is your Um, one message?
5: um, So I I think a a large, Part of this is that um, many people had different experiences for how COVID-19 had affected them. Um, and I think the really important thing is to check in on your, you know, friends and family. You may speak to them all the time, but there is a level of um, I guess, I guess, camaraderie we should have in that we went through the shared experience and that uh, you don't have to have any type of qualification to just check in on someone, a loved one, or even someone who you may think hasn't had anyone to check in on them. Um, And so I think maybe even extending like a compassionate um, hi or hello or asking someone like how they might be doing just to start off conversation, because I really believe social isolation and the quarantine has affected so many people. Um, I actually did previous work on social isolation, even before COVID. That was a, a topic of discussion we talked about for especially our, our um, older patients going through strokes. Um, anytime time you are experiencing disease and you're isolated, it is really bad for like overall your health as well as just um you're we're we're all social creatures and we we need other other people to lift us up and just to be around so I think checking in on people um you know we might be all over wherever we are in our individual like homes but um checking in on each other will go a long way because i think that that's the second pandemic was this isolation that we all had to experience and even healthcare providers had to experience.
0: Wow, well, thank you for that. It's refreshing to hear from a doctor or doctoral student who thinks beyond of the treatment, you know, in medicine, right? We don't often see doctors or hear from doctors that think about the social ills or <laughs> the social impact. So thank you for that.
1: Then, um, One thing I will say is that it's important to do your own research um, because I too was skeptical about the vaccine when it first came out or when they started talking about it at work. So it's important to do your own research and stay away from WhatsApp and Facebook because there's <laughs> a lot of fear mongering there. There's a lot of fear mongering and like, that's not going to do anyone good. Like I don't know how those places have benefited anyone. Um, so, like, it may be hard to do research because, you know, we're, we all, like, all of us went to college, so we know how to do research, but the average person doesn't. So, also, when you're educating people, it's important to be patient and explain things to them in a way they'll understand. So, that's all I got to say.
0: Thank you, Ben. Appreciate it. Nia?
2: Um, what I would have to say is, being intentional about who you spend time with and uh, I guess talk to often, sort of similar to what Maria was saying. Um, Cause especially since obviously you couldn't just see everybody that you wanted to over COVID. I think it sort of gave me like a minute to step back and realize like who I actually made like intentional plans with of hanging out and like who I truly like wanted to see. So I think it's sort of like made my relationships even stronger because it's like you can't really see everyone. So you have to be deliberate about, you know, making plans with people and who you really want to see. And I think, yeah, just like supporting each other and checking in on your loved ones, because I know that everyone knew that like life wasn't promised before this, but I think especially since this, it's been a shock to see that like, you really don't know what's gonna happen. So,
0: yeah. Wow, for someone that young, you are very wise. Thank you. Um, Alexis? I think
3: I this were parting
0: words, right? So I said a
3: little earlier about this idea of self-care and I love to wrap that around community care because that's what I think I heard was it Maria was saying? I, I like what everyone has said, trusting in our public health colleagues. I think it's sort of what Ben was saying too. Obviously we wanna be able to open up our community to include people that have the knowledge that's scientific, right? Um, and engaging in those kind of conversations. The fact that you even hosted something like this is so special so that people can have the opportunity to hear from you know our medical colleagues and professionals and public health people this is so much better than going on Facebook right or as you said Ben going on um, whatever social media platform where people are just sort of spreading misinformation right so I wanted to extend to you Christiana just uh very warm and loving. Thank you for being very forward thinking and saying, you know, let's convene a, a group of people who might have some ideas and hope that these are the kind of forms. Actually, there's not a lot of these forms, right, where people can hear from people that know and people that they might relate to and say, wow, that person has a similar background to me or that person's my age. Right. So, um, That's that's
0: what I have to say. Thank you. It's a good note to end on. Community, what is it? Community support Um, and being kind to each other, being intentional um, and providing information that's factual. Thank you all very much for the time here. I just want to check in with Sneha and Smither to see if they have any last words they'd like to share before we bring this to an end.
4: No, I'm just really happy seeing everyone here and hearing all the comments. And um, yeah, and yeah, going back to community care, it's so important. And a lot of states just got a lot of money from the CDC with the new bill. And so share those those jobs with anti-racist people (laughs) and make sure everyone knows about that. Yeah, I'm happy
5: everyone's here.
0: Yeah, thank you.
5: Another? Um Just echoing what everyone is saying, and um, it's a beautiful thought that community care and uh, versus what America has traditionally been, which is
6: individualistic. And it's nice to see, um, heartening to see communities come together and really lift each other up and the need to do so much more at this
0: time. Absolutely, particularly at this time. Thank you guys. Good luck in your profession, at school. This has been wonderful. Thank you for coming. Thank you. Bye-bye.